Hello, and welcome to Going Off Track. Oh, yeah. Welcome. Glad to be here. Yes, me and Brad here doing some intros at Brad's place. Um, Benny and Steven probably doing some parenting somewhere. Yeah, probably. They're good parents, both of them. Yes, very responsible parents. (sighs) Did you see the frogs behind you? Yeah, Brad. How's some frogs? What's the story with these? I'm wondering since your microphone is kind of pointed right at them, if any of the like noises are coming through. Do they do they make any noise ever? If you they're such little pigs that if you go hold your hand like over them over the tank, they'll jump out, or at least the big fat one will jump out and try to eat food out of your hand. No way. Yeah, these are like water frogs. These are aquatic frogs Whoa. like kids have. Here, you want to see? Watch this. So there's these frogs are swimming around. Brad's got his hand over the tank. And yeah, <laughs> this frog is swimming and jumping out of the water. <laughs> he'll like, he'll, he'll wow. hit your hand. He'll hit your fingers. You can try it afterward. After. I definitely will try it. I'll take a video and, and uh, we'll send it to our fans. Yeah. <laughs> this is the kind of exclusive content you're going to be getting. Oh, yeah. Exclusive content. Hopefully we'll get it together and uh, give you guys something who've been donating Venmo and otherwise. Today on the podcast, Roger. very, very exciting podcast. Um, been trying to set this one up for a while. We have Roger Murray, uh, the singer for New York hardcore, legendary New York hardcore band, Agnostic Front. Um, he has a new book out. Um, it's the number one bestseller in punk musician biographies on Amazon. It is called My Riot, Agnostic Front, Grit, Guts, and Glory. Um, Roger Murray wrote it with John Wiederhorn and... Uh, I've read it. It's an incredible book, an incredible story. Um, you know, Roger, Roger's little brother is Freddie from Madball, who's also been on the podcast years ago. But yeah, Roger grew up in Cuba, ended up kind of in New York in the 80s, sort of like as the hardcore scene was just starting out. As you can imagine, it was a super dangerous, violent place. <laughs> he takes us through the whole history of the band uh, and his own personal history. Uh, his ended up, you know, trying to support his family, ended up in prison for a while. He gets very into that. We talk about that in the podcast. And he seems to be doing great now. He is, you know, has like a family, lives in Arizona. He's writing a book. He wrote this amazing book. Still, you know, We're both jealous of that. Yes. <laughs> still does music. Um, yeah, Agnostic Front still does stuff. Um, and yeah, he's, he's like a hardcore legend. Oh, yeah, he's royalty in New York. Yes. And it was a super, super friendly guy. Yeah. So thank you to um, to Jenny uh, for setting this up and uh, to Pulse Music for letting us Pulse record. Music letting us do it and Michael Crowland for um, for helping out as well and uh, yeah let's just get into it uh, here is this podcast I think everyone was at this one right yeah we'd like a full house oh yeah the whole crew yep whole crew there for Roger Murray everyone came out uh, super fun and let's just get into this podcast with Ignacio Fronts for Roger Murray. Roger, I think we might have met a really long time ago. I'm having a flashback. Was it in Cleveland? Were you out with Good Charlotte yeah. and Less Than Jake? I was just talking about that. Really? Yeah. I'm friends with those Good Charlotte guys. They gave me a shout out at that show and said I was their favorite music journalist. It was like wow, a high point awesome. of my career. That was the only time I've ever been in a played or arena, toured the arenas. Yeah, that and was at the Tower City. They loved, those guys loved uh, the Disasters, my solo band. Right. And I remember when Benji came up to me at CBGB's, he's like, man, he he was hanging out here and there. 
He said, man, I really want to bring the disasters on tour. Would you come with us? I was like, are you for real? You know? And he sure, he made it happen. What were mm-hmm. the shows like for you guys? It was, a, it, was a, it was amazing, but it was like starting at the top and going down. It was, yeah. it was like Usually like, you start at the bottom and you go up. Yeah. But it was like, what a, what a thing to start playing at arenas. And then just find yourself back to the clubs, you know? It was weird. <laughs> it was Less and Jake was on that yeah. too? Yeah, and um, Newfound Glory. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's it was cre- great. It's like we went out there and the people thought... It, it was like the Beatles automatically. People just che- cheered. They didn't even know us. And it's, it's a paid audience of some sort. All little kids. <laughs> well, we made some good fans out of that, too. Yeah, I'm sure. But it's just really weird. Cause, I mean, at the time, Good Charlotte, every song on that record was a hit. And yeah. they were hosted MTV. And I remember in that specific tour... Newfound Glory was on that tour too, and they were cha- and they were, the management they were trying to say we should switch because Good Charlotte was blowing up, and Newfound Glory was kind of headstrong about not switching, mm. and I think it hurt them more than anything because after Good Charlotte had played, People they had to play, and a lot of kids left because Good Charlotte was the band for the little kitties. So yeah. they were like breaking while you were on that uh, tour. I, yeah, on like fire. While it was happening, on fire. Is it they crazy? They were hosting to watch? MTV, everything, right? right. Is it crazy to watch like kids from like Good Charlotte and Newfound Glory who I know they they're not really hardcore bands at all but like they're kind of hardcore kids and mm-hmm. sort of came out of that scene a little bit. Is it like crazy to see not only a band who could like make their career being those kids but like be super super successful like that? Yeah, but I've seen it my whole life, my whole career. I have flyers I can show you where you see Agnostic Front over here and then you see The Offspring, right. Rancid. Uh, should I keep going? Yeah, you know? yeah. And it's yeah. like everything's been a, a like a launch pad. They, all their show first shows were with us, and they were excited to play with us. Right. Uh, the band from Chicago. What's that band from Chicago? It's really popular. Oh, Fall Out Boy. No. Oh no, not Fall Out Boy. We played them. No, the other one that's huge. Rise Against. Rise Against. Yeah, they did right. a tour with us. Yeah, and they were the openers. Nobody cared. And it's it's story of my life. Well, you guys, you guys hooked me up. When I was like, shit, 18 years old, do you remember playing a benefit show at an Elks Lodge in New Jersey? <laughs> yeah, I remember that. And I, for Matt Levitin. Yeah. He's my best friend, and that was the venue I did shows at, and me and Tim Shaw from Ensign, Tim. you know, hooked up that show. And we had, like, roster booked. I mean, people were like, yo, we want to help out. We had this amazing thing booked. And then, like, it's just like a few days before, and I think either Dave Franklin... Or the sick of it all guys or somebody hit us up and we're like, yo, Agnostic Front wants to do the show. We didn't even, we were like, we didn't even ask because we're like, there's no way Agnostic Front will do the show. And then like two, three days before the show happens, we got a call being like, yo, they're up for it. Like they want to play. Can they play? We're like, yeah, yeah, it's cool. Maybe find some, find some room (laughs) to this giant hardcore festival at an Elks Lodge. Yeah, remember that. So I appreciate that. I never got a chance to say it, even though it was like nearly 20 years ago. That was, I was going to say, that was a long time ago. Yeah. And that show actually got one of my first bands signed. Because we had a sick pit at that show. <laughs> it was like the first time I just had a big circle in front of one of my bands. Somebody's like, got to scoop them up. <laughs> worked. Totally worked. Roger, I mean, how did sort of the idea for, for my ride... This is happening right now. Yeah, this is happening right now. Oh, yeah. That's how we do We're it. We're cruising. Like oh, man. So, you know, um, <laughs> is it, has it been happening? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. 
We will. Yeah, 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 we can cut it out. Edit goes to good. you, man. It's yeah, cool. yeah. Got you, it goes Thank to you. you. Yeah, yeah. Wow, this is awesome. We're artists. We're just family. shooting the shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah we yeah, like that's the whole vibe. That's the whole thing. That's the vibe. Oh, I like this. That's the vibe. Let's roll some dice while we're at it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, so we've all kind of read the book. I mean, how how did kind of the idea for it come about? I mean, why did you think now is a good time to kind of get this out there? Well, it was it. You know, it's weird. Now is the time that it came out, but this thing started in 1999. I was, mm-hmm. a, I was in the studio at Big Blue Mini here in uh, New Jersey at the time. And Aaron we, Farley. And that, we, we were working with, with uh, Lars there? Fredrickson. Oh, uh, yeah. He came out to produce Riot Riot Upstart. And he was staying with me for uh, three and a half weeks in Long Island City. I was just drove by Long Island City. I can't even believe it. But anyway, um, and, you know, like usual, like, you know, having a casual conversation like we do, we've been doing this forever with all these other bands we tour with. And they're like, oh, tell us the stories. Tell us about old New York. Tell us about this. And everybody's always like, wow, that's great. That's great. But Lars is like, no way. You know what? We're going to write a book. And I'm like, okay. Mm-hmm. He goes, no, right now. So we went and bought a little tape recorder. That's and that's how it all started. Huh. And if you look at the liner, liner notes on the Ride Ride Upstar, you'll see... I'm writing a book. It's called uh, Just Us. That's what I was calling it back then. There's no justice. It's just us. Right. And it's going to be out soon. Well, soon took a long time. It was 1999. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, a lot of things happened on the way to, you know, fast forward on the way to like about three years ago when things got serious again. I lost a book twice. Um, you know, torn a lot between... Roger Marin, the disasters, Agnostic Front, and then the alligators, to having two kids, you know. So you know, life got in the way. Yeah. May, may I add, it's pretty much life got in the way. But then all of a sudden, uh, it was time to finish it, and here I am today. So what was the process kind of like? Would would you just kind of talk talk it out? Or? Yeah, I was talking. To, the original way this started before it took real shape was I had that little tape recorder, and. Um, and then I started talking into it. I hate typing. I still do today. I hate typing. I, anytime I do an interview, if, if it's a type interview, I'm like, I don't want to tell them to call me. I don't want to do it. <laughs> you know? And I then I got stuck with a bunch of tapes. I'm like, what am I going to do now? <laughs> you know? So then I started producing bands. That's why I walked in the studio. I was like, wow, really cool. So in exchange, I never did production for any money. I did it for, could you take these tapes and put them onto something i could work with and they oh, gave cool. me a bunch of floppy discs i still have these original floppy discs which is all the stories you know so now i have something to work with you know and i could add or do stuff with so then uh fast forward to 2001 uh, the world trade center thing happened and i lost it all i lost it all except for the floppy disk i lost it all because i had the, my, my laptop backed up to my red computer and everybody was trying to find out what's going on viruses you know Bam, I lost this and that. Shit. So then I said, I'm going to start this over like two years later. And I bought this thing called Naturally, this program called Naturally Speaking Dragon, which you talk yeah. and you train your, your computer to your voice. And I'm trying to get the shortcut from not typing. You oh, know? I see. That took about a month and a half to train my computer to understand me because my accent being a, a <laughs> coming from Cuba, B in New York, this computer is like, where is this guy from, you know? <laughs> it wasn't like a normal guy, you know? So that took like a month and a half where we wouldn't type the craziest things because I would talk. I had to read this horrible thing, these words I didn't even know how to even pronounce and until it, it got used to me that's talking. That's really funny. You know? And then I lost it again with another virus, you know? And then that's when I, I'm not trying to plug Apple over here, but that's when I switched to Apple. Yeah. yeah. And I never lost it again. But 
I had tried to start it all over again. This time I had my wife in the pocket and she started typing it. Everything cool. You know, everything was working out. Mm -hmm. And um, let's get forward to where we are today. I, I did an interview with John, John Widerhorn, who's, who helped me write the book, co-author with me. And um, and it was basically, what was that, Louder Than... What was that? Louder Than Hell. Louder Than Hell, his book, an oral history of, of metal. But he wanted to do like a crossover thing. Hmm. And he wanted to hear it from like the, someone from that crossover era. And then when I... When we did this thing, he's like, wow, this is amazing. You know, he's doing all these metal things. All of a sudden, he's speaking to someone from a different angle. Right. And then we hit it off. And then when he found out we were doing our film, uh, The Godfather's of Hardcore, which is done, and it'll be out by the end of the year, um, he's a good friend with Ian McFarlane, the, the director of the film. And he's like, hey, man, you know, I, it, Ian has saw my book, all that stuff. He, and he said, John, you got to read this stuff. It's incredible. So he, he's, it's John's like, where, where can I read? He says, get a hold of Roger. So he called me again and, and I sent him everything and he loved it. He's like, this is fantastic. I want to help you. I had my pride in a way of everything else. You know, I've been working on this thing for so long, you know? So I was like, no, sorry. You know, this is something I'm doing on my own. I can't do it. Blah, blah, blah. You know, three years later go by to fast forward again. And out of nowhere, John hit me up. He comes, "Hey man, how's that book going? I want to, I want to read the rest. Tell me, show me where you're at. You know, uh-huh. you know." And I'm like, "You know what?" I saw that night. I went to bed with my wife. I'm like, "You know what?" She's like, "Let him help you because you're never going to finish it. It's the yeah. truth. It's the truth." And I, I accepted, and it's the best thing I ever did because uh-huh. not only that is I had my vision of, of front to back, and I had my stories front to back, but it was very therapeutic for him to get involved because he opened up a bunch of can of worms that I had closed off that probably would have never shared. I see. And it was really good. Cause it was, so it was like not telling only that, it to somebody else. Right. It was, exactly. Right. It was very therapeutic and a, a psychiatrist or whatever. Yeah. It was really cool because it's, it's completely somebody that has nothing to do with nobody to judge me, no one to know anything about me. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's like talking to a complete stranger. Right. And it was all, you could tell it's a complete stranger, anything. Cause they, you know, it's 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 like a hidden secret. You right. talk to a complete stranger, you know. Yeah, they don't know anybody you're talking about. Yeah. They don't know. Yeah, and yeah. he was just blown away, fascinated. We we started with the the bones of what was there, and then we just went in. And, Is he from New York? Yeah, he's originally from New York. He's in New Jersey now. He's he's a uh, louder than hell is one of his books and so is the um where's the other two books he did the al jurgensen book scott ian book oh okay he's a veteran writer he's a really and a good person and but he's more seasoned in the metal world so hardcore and and my life is something totally blowing him away and he loved every minute of it and we just kept digging into different areas different into into different things going back and forth i have files of i have Print it because I print everything. It's about this big, this big, going back and forth, little markers, and yeah. and finally here's the finished product that went you know through a couple of edits. You did one of the edits, didn't you? Nice. Yeah, Michael did one of the edits. Michael Crowland, shout out. Yeah. <laughs> After all the years, like of like thinking about it, and you had it, and you redone it a couple times, where they're like certain sections or stories that you're like, yo, that has to be in. Like those are crucial, or did you kind of leave that to John? No, no, I I think there was definitely newer stories added to it, of course, mm-hmm. and there were stories that had to be in it there. Um, you know, it just took whatever direction, like what we're doing right here. 
This is it. This is whatever direction it goes, the direction it goes. And every conversation took a different direction, a different angle. And if I sparked something, I said something that was really interesting. Wait mm-hmm. a minute. Hold right. up, hold up, hold up. Let's back up. And then he's just, wow, fascinating, you know? And it, one of the most challenging parts of the whole thing was, was when I originally, everything I had done, was it was, it was kind of all over the place. Because, you know, I, I, I suffer from ADD and ABC, EFG and everything else, you know? <laughs> and I'm all over the place. Because yeah, yeah. my mind races. My mind is everywhere. I'm thinking a hundred things at the same time. I, I'm restless. I really am a restless person. I don't even think I know how to relax. Right. And um, Which is a hard thing I've been dealing with. But It makes sense. You watch some AF videos, especially when you were a sprightly young man. You were crazy up there. Yeah. You're doing some things with your body. I could, I'd pull a rotator cuff and like hurt my hip. I probably did all that stuff. Trust me. You know, but it, when you're a kid, you ever see those little kids when they're doing stuff? Like, how did, did you not twist your arm up? <laughs> right. Yeah, they contort. But I was everywhere, you know, and um, it was hard to put it all in a in a in in an order where it flowed front to back and and just. Dropping in the parts in the right location—that was really right. a challenge. In I wanted own. to ask about that. Did you have to like have someone help you chronologically keep track? No. I, the good thing about me is I'm—I've been a hoarder my whole life when it comes to punk rock and hardcore, and I've got—I've got. You'd be surprised. My flyer collection, my poster collection, my record collection, my T-shirt collection, my Kept bracelet collection, my Even pin after collection. The fires? Yeah, I had the wow. one fire rock, not, took out one part. I lost a lot in that fire, but I still. You know, I had five, uh, three fires in that building, three fires and in the squad building. But it was just that one took out the one. And that was a, a big one, a big, uh, a big truck. But there's all the four other walls of shit, you know, <laughs> but that was that was awful. More so, more worst thing about that fire was we lost our dog. Yeah, that was sure. the worst thing about it. You said in the book that people would actually light fires on purpose in those squats to try to get people out. Yeah, well, the early, we're going back, we're, this is another, er, this is early what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, back then, they wanted to get everybody else so they could sell the building. Landlords this was like the doing, East Village yeah. or Lower East Side? And, and we we took over a building that was be a warehouse. This one in particular wasn't being warehouse, but the landlord wanted to get out because he could sell the shell, the whole building. Where so, was that in the city again? That was in 9th Street and C. Okay. Um, and I'm trying to remember the name of that building. We did a benefit for that too. I can't think of the top of my head right now. I'm a little burnt out. Um, but anyway, he just burned to get everybody out, you know, and there was tons of stuff like that going on. There was, there was buildings I was living in that were vacant, almost like four or five only people living in there because they wanted to wear what they called warehousing, wanted to. It's it was you make more of a profit selling a building with a lot of empty space and with people living in it. So they would, as you're living in there as a tenant, but we would go in and take the warehouse apartments. But there was actual real people living there, but huh. nobody would come in because we had dogs or whatever. And you could legally squat back then anything. So we know there was like four or five warehouse apartments. We go in and we squat it and we claimed it. Huh. So now they had to get rid of us too. But there was regular tenants in there. Interesting. So it's like you can't sell a building if it's got. Tenants in it because of rent control. They ain't going to go anywhere unless you buy them out. Mm-hmm. So as the people would leave, they'd, they'd rather leave it empty 
right? So they have more. So when the new investor comes in, well, I've got about 15 units that are empty. There's three, three that aren't. So you deal with the three anchor trope, but now you got 15 you could update and make a killing. Huh. That's gentrification, my friend. You know, that's yeah, what was yeah. going on in New York City. When did that time. change with the squatting rules like that, where they started really cracking down on it? You know, I kind of left the, the the last squat I lived in. It's apparently it's beautiful. I have to drive by oh, really? to see it. But we they sold it to to the tenants for a dollar. But the conditions were you had to redo everything with all their stuff, and you, it stays in a family. You can't really like sell right. or nothing like that. But then you it's kind of you get a loan for everybody. And everybody chips in for the new boiler, the new heating system, the new electric. You have to bring it all up to code, you right, know? Right, right. But by that time, we, we were kind of over a lot of stuff and dealing with the fires. We were just over it and sometimes dealing with the people. What year was that around? Oh, uh, 1990, maybe around 96, 97, that building converted. Okay. Maybe even later, that building converted to a legal one of the last ones but sometimes the people you you were living with some, some people some the family oriented ones were they wanted to do the right thing the other people were there for freeloading you know right free rent we had stupid thing like a we would all chip in like a you know once a month 150 dollars chip in just to get stuff for the building help some people wouldn't even do that mm. it's like it's only 150 dollars you know each of us a, contribute whatever labor we knew how to do i was i did all the lot lot of the electrical people had different reasons for being there right yeah what's it like for you kind of hanging out in that area now like is it surreal are you like i saw this guy gets head bashed in here and now it's like a fancy store yeah you know it's i like to tell i like to say it's just not my party anymore that's always okay with me leaving new york because it changed so much the new york i love you look at taxi driver that's the new york i love that's the new york that that kind of molded me, and, and 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 really, my passion is that New York, the New York that it became. I mean, I was okay leaving. You know, it was okay for me to come and visit, and mm-hmm. I am okay with that. You know, and I, I just didn't want to dive into now. You know, I did have a rent control apartment I left in Long Island City. It was a a legal two bedroom, legal ba- a real bathroom, a real kitchen, a real two bedrooms, and a big living room. And it, at that time, I left. It was a thousand eleven hundred, which is amazing, Long Island City. But um, you know, having kids and stuff, walking up four flights of stairs, whatever, you get the quality of life was a lot better and easier where I moved to. And I was okay leaving. I was already. I had you know, once when you're a single guy in New York City, everything's fun, everything's crazy. But when you got married, you got kids, you know, it's different. School is harder. Everything's harder. I'm dealing with that right now. I got two kids in the city in Jersey City, and I'm just like, I think in my head sometimes, I'm like, I'm like, I would have just walked in my front door like an hour before I just did if I had a garage. I'm like, what would this do if I just yeah. split? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like where, but then there's that balance, you know, I'm like, I don't know if I want to raise kids out in the suburbs or, or like the type of place that I felt like I had to escape. You know, there's a reason I live where I live. So I don't know what's the what's the bonus. I'm yeah. torn. Well, we for, can talk. <laughs> well, for me, you know, being as long as I'm buying international airport, I could live anywhere. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And and I mean, literally, 
anywhere and it was just more comfortable and i'm kind of glad i'm kind of glad my kids got something the whole different life than i ever had right. probably what i fantasized from the beginning why i got myself in so much trouble in my book to try to make it better for my for nadia you, you see my path and I, I spiraled backwards downward because i didn't have anything and i felt like i was going back reverse and that's where i started messing up dealing with drugs and all that stuff mm. so I'm kind of happy where I'm at. And it's okay to come visit. It yeah, really yeah. is. What was it like? I mean, speaking of that, like it seemed like you were doing all the stuff for your family in the book and the drug stuff. And obviously the prison thing is a big part of the book. I mean, what was it like kind of revisiting <coughs> kind of that period of your life for the book? Um, I did, you know, here's one thing for sure. I, don't, I didn't think I wanted to hit up on the prison thing, which is a good thing about collaborating with John. And even... I was telling you about the way that the book started today. It's pretty cool. I'm going to send it to you. I'm mm -hmm. going to send you the skeleton. It's pretty cool. It was completely, it was very different. And there's, that's one thing I wasn't thinking about hitting because my plan and my initial bones of the book ended with cause for alarm. So think about it. There's no prison. It was just because I always felt that our, I've always felt that our fans love the very early, early, early beginning, which they do. It's true. So I figured, let me stop at cause for alarm, and if everybody liked it, then let me continue. So, mm. so everybody got a little bit more out of it. Waiting, it was more rewarding for the reader because now you got till current, you know. So I was never going to go that far. Um, and it was, it was, it was okay. Again, therapeutic. You're very good mm -hmm. to talk about it because I've never have. I never, really never have talked much about it, but I never felt like I had to because when I release one voice, I've always felt like one voice is my uh, Pink Floyd The Wall or my Who Quadrophenia where it's all theme-based albums. Mm -hmm. I, I never did a theme-based album. Right. One voice is that kid fucking up and going to prison. And the whole record is that, lyrically going fucking up going through each step and getting out that's one voice and mm -hmm. in fact the last song one voice is uh is a song about like my stepfather being so brutally and fucking fucking me up that fucked my whole life up that's the last song you Crazy. know came in the studio we need one more song okay i got it let's go show matt and it's what to do play guitar when kim went in there and and i released that it was because it all had to do with all that you know my whole spiraling, everything had to do with that. I didn't know until I started doing one voice, you know? Were those, like, the things with, like, your stepfather and stuff? Was that stuff you kind of came to when you were doing time? Uh, what do you mean? I'm, I'm a little... Like, like, are those, like, the types of things that you were really thinking about and dealing with prior to going to jail? Or did it kind of spark in your brain like while you were there just processing while i was incarcerated i got to process a lot of stuff that i didn't because i was living in a moment living in a time and right and none of it really bothered me as much i mean there was definitely mental abuse and physical abuse but there was always a reason behind it i think it's just the upbringing the way we all most of us older people were up, up raised you know like you know i i don't i don't i don't I think a lot of the people in my age category were raised and it was always there was some sort of physical abuse, you know. Your mom was quick to hit you with a belt or a shoe or something. That's how we were raised. Yeah. But And I get where he was coming from. He wanted to, you know, we were living in bad neighborhoods, bad areas. And boy, you better tough up, you know. And that's where he was coming from. But some of it was farther than that. Right. But his whole purpose is just to toughen the shit up toughen us up you know but there's better ways to do it now you sure. know i could have done the same thing with my kids 
but I know better, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I, my kids go to jujitsu five years. They're going to deal with not bullying and don't, and, and deal with a bully if they have to. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Can I ask you a different. question about that? And I'm serious about the jujitsu because my girls are six. I have twins. Okay. And I tried it. I tried jujitsu and they both flipped out and they wouldn't do it. But in my head, I was like, I want you to have something like that. Is there an age to start that on? I don't mean to derail it, but I, I'm just would, so fascinated by this. My son started at six. My daughter started at eight. Okay. And they're still there until date. Yeah. Huh. Six and eight, yeah. Let me see. No, I was wrong. My son started at four. My daughter wow. started at yeah, six. They started four, uh, yeah, yeah, because they got five years in. Wow. Almost five years. Gotta four try and them six. Again. Maybe your girls. You know what it is? Sometimes um, yeah. it depends where you go. Yeah, and, and I'm getting off the topic, of course. Oh but no, sorry. If you go like there the, are no topics. Like I, I like the bullyproof Gracie. Jiu- I go. I do yeah. Gracie. I do straight up Gracie. Right. Jiu- but there's different types. But from mm-hmm. the Academy Gracie, I have a one they'll call bullyproof, mm-hmm. and it starts at that age of six. There's a lot of games, and they're not. They're learning through playing, and it gets a little bit more serious at the age of eight. Okay. So if you get them to play and learn it but it's it there's a reason why they're doing this stuff they teach they're of learning course. how to roll they're learning how to fall not in their head they're learning how to move and eventually you'll see it as it goes but i mean anyway that's the way i rather i rather approach things than just hitting my my son but there was also a mental thing going on there because he was also didn't like my dad and it was mm-hmm. there was like trying to win me over or and and th- there was a lot like there's no need to take something somebody give you and destroy it just to prove a point. I don't. Oh, the get rabbit it. thing is haunting. Yeah, man. that's that, haunting. That was very, and and in the film, there's another part that you'll see when you get to see the film. But there was a lot. Yeah, you know what I mean. That's uncalled for. Uh, it's completely uncalled for. Like who who in the right mind would do that? But he wasn't in the right mind. Mm-hmm. And this was out of his own anger. Out of his, he was probably pissed off that. My dad just showed up with something or just anger. And he was probably, I, I, I don't know, he was probably drunk or something at the time. But most of the time when he acted out, he wasn't in, in, you know, he was drunk or some kind of substance abuse, yeah. you know. And it seemed like you were always trying to look out for Freddie, too. When yeah, I there. always did. You know, the other day I was um, I was with my wife and and, I, and not every memory is, is bad. But the, the, the sad thing about it is every bad thing you do goes farther like as a memory you know mm. that's the really sad thing about it because i was i was with my wife and i was like i was remembering when i was 13 years old i think and i wanted my first boom box and it was the only place to get boom boxes is you had to come into this we were living in in uh we may have been still in patterson and we had to drive into the city and 14th street used to be all the electronic area mm. you know you know, and 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 it was Christmas time, so he took me to get my first boombox. And yeah, there's good memories. And I was remember shopping for a Brisbane boombox. Of course, it was a budget, and you know, you're a kid, but he got me a pretty fair looking, cool one with a big speaker. There's good memories. There really mm-hmm. is. Sure. But the, the 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 bad memories overpower the good memories, man. And that's the damaging part. And that's my a lot of the point of my story is like you know. That it's like I messed up, but all the mess up overpowered a lot of the good stuff in my life too. But I think in the end, I think I, I learned from it. And Freddie was was that kid that I didn't want him to go through what I went through. How crazy is that? I felt that my six year old brother would be safer with me living in an abandoned building among criminals, drug addicts, in a shitty time in New York. How crazy is that? Yeah. I look at my kid. Who's eight years old? And, it, and and as I was going through my story, and my wife was reading something, she goes, 
Like, it's like taking my eight year old or at the time six year old to to a place like who would do that, right? right. You think about it, it's, it's insane. That's how much safer I felt Freddie was with me, and uh-huh. my mom knew it. My mom allowed it. Huh. She knew it. Yeah, she allowed me to take him for the whole summer. She knew it. She knew I would, because I was always protecting my brother and sister. She knew, maybe who knows what kind of a harmful, dangerous situation you get into if you stay yeah. home. It's funny you talk about that because in the book, it's like when you read it, you're like you're reading the stories and you're empathizing and sympathizing. But then when there's something that struck me as on the lighter side. It really strikes you on the lighter side. Reading your book and all of a sudden it's, yeah, Rodney Dangerfield introduced us once. Yeah. Like, well, how the hell? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, that's like the biggest left turn I would ever expect from someone in hardcore. You know what I mean? And it was so quick. It was like, <laughs> I was like, me and Vinny, like, he just, he did his, his, his regular act and, and he was so like nervous and we, we, we were playing with Slayer. We were playing with Slayer at the Ritz. And there's a great write-up on that. I think that because uh, for some reason, we, being us, we were the New York band. We we're playing with Slayer and it was a it was right after the Crossful Arm record. We got a really nice write-up in the paper. Yeah. And, and I've been trying to look for it. I think I may have remembered them actually saying Ronnie Dangerfield introduced, but it was so fast. I don't think people caught it, but it was it was amazing. <laughs> You know, it's one of those crazy things that happened. Were you, uh, I, speaking of like articles from that time, I went ahead and revisited um, when everybody was on Donahue in 86 oh. over that, uh, what was his name, Peter Blonner article in the New Yorker or New York Magazine that highlighted all the hardcore kids were you in attendance no i never i never wanted to be i saw vinny on it yeah if you look at a lot i mean i always stood away from all that stuff yeah it's just like there's even this amazing footage that's going to be part of the film and you see they actually introduced they interview the whole band but me and i'm the singer oh really you know it's just like i don't want to deal with this stuff i know what they're fishing for i know what they're fishing for i know what they want i know what they want to sell the public Mm -hmm. i don't want to be a part of it yeah yeah you know i know where they're going to go with it and it's going to go their way either way you put it you know you can say this is red and it is red but you know what we're going to tell we're going to sell everybody that it's blue and everybody believes it's blue so i wasn't going to waste my time to be honest with you so i wouldn't even go to that so you knew about it and just actively was like like, whatever i'm not gonna deal with this Do you feel like the book was an opportunity for you to like clear up misconceptions? Like, there's so much about maximum rock and roll, and sort of yeah. them saying you guys were a white power band, and sort of your perspective, and sort of how. Yeah, but uh, gen- the genuine people in the scene knew, right? And I don't think it was a, 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 a for me to clear anything up to be to to be honest with you, because throughout the years, I think we, you know, the, the, through the test of time, you know, here we are, you know, and it, and, and you, and you all, you all know the story. It was a very tough time, very tough era. If anything, they threw us in the heat. The most, what I really wanted to get across was all, like all this fire aiming at us, throwing at us, put us in the front line of a lot of shit that we clearly didn't deserve to be in when we were speaking out against. And you brought all this danger and this element of hate and danger to my shows when I'm talking about not, not I'm, I'm clearly talking against it. And this is what you did. I just wanted to pinpoint that, like how much, how all the all the stuff that that could happen, and it was easy for them. They're just talking about it in a nice little suburban home, not dealing with it. Right. Guess what? We got to deal with it. 
you know, bad publicity is just as good as good publicity as long as you spell the name right. It worked for the Sex Pistols. It worked for Agnostic Front. So here you go. People coming out to see if we wear brown shirts. Like, hell no, we don't wear brown shirts. And then they're loving us. They're like, oh, wow, this is great. And then it backfired. Everything right. backfired. But at the same time, you have legit other people showing up because they believe. And then now the backfired, some of the stuff backfired. Now it's just confrontational. Now how do you got to deal with it? Right. You know? And that's... That's a dangerous situation to put yourself in, you know, or put people in when you're sitting back just typing about it and not being a part of it. Sure. You know? One of my favorite things you wrote in the book is uh, unity doesn't sell, hate does. Yeah. That's, I, hey. I thought, and, and I physically, I physically put that in a book. That's amazing. That comes from me. I'm like, yeah. this is important. And it's the truth. They need, they need some kind of, uh, and at the same time, um, what do you call that? Uh, I'm looking for the right word. Controversy. Mm-hmm. Controversy is very powerful. And I like controversy because controversy is... I like... Con- but I don't like hate. I like controversy because mm-hmm. controversy makes you think. So it when you were you question, like you know penning some of those lyrics back in the day, like were... Was some of the like fuel to do it like to fuck with people? No. To kind of stir the pot or... No, no, no. I, I don't think I did anything to fuck with anybody or... St- stirred a pot if anything fucking around and to fuck with people was more later on when i was with mad boy just <laughs> little little jabs that stuff you know right no um i like to always write about uh what i call social politics about what happens around me on a day-to-day basis. i I've, i always like to think about what was fair i grew up in poverty i grew up in 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 and i had things that were a benefit to me but only because i was Hispanic and I grew up in poverty, but it wasn't good enough for someone else. And I don't believe in that. Right. You know, I believe that same thing. I believe in school should be free for everybody. Um, health should be free for everybody. It's, it's, you know, some people say, oh, that's socialist way of thinking, but you know what? We're human beings. It's, 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 you know, free education. If you want it, if you're going to be, uh, if you're going to be a bum and get like D's and C's and you know what, here's your limit. But if you got that little bright kid living in the Bronx who could get A plus, who could probably invent, who could get us to, to, to Mars or further, why hold them back? Right. Because they don't have A money or, or, or something. So I always think like those are good challenges, you know, and a lot of my lyrics have to do with that. Like what's fair to one should be fair to all. Right. That's that's all it was about because I I've experienced both sides. Yeah. How I was going to ask, like, how much did your experience play into that? Because you... If I'm not mistaken, you came to the U.S. at four, mm-hmm. and it was part of a, a refugee resettlement program? Pretty much. Everybody leaving Cuba from 1963, I think, maybe, it's, or 61, 63, 61, right. it started, till just about, we were like probably some of the last planes that left. So almost like a semi-socialist practice is like the reason well, you got here. Right. You know, like my, my family in Cuba weren't, um, were, were more on the well-off section. If okay. you want to say we lived in a really nice house and, and my uncle was a doctor, you know, it, it was nice, you know? So when Castro came in, he wanted equality for everybody, but his, 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 his vision was a little bit different. Yeah. And some of these people struggled to have what they had in their life. And they felt like, my father's side was the side that came in. They felt like, you know what? We've been struggling too hard. We're not just going to collapse. Let's go to America. Let's seek that American dream. Right. And a lot of people that came in that era were seeking that American dream. Just like a lot of foreigners coming anyway, like you're, you're in your waves of 
of, you know, your, your Italians, your, you know, Irish, everybody coming for a better life. Sure. An opportunity. And that opportunity was about to go. And they're like, well, we better get out of here. I guess. I was a kid. I followed my mom, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. There was no political anything <laughs> yeah, part yeah, about yeah. that. Sure. I was just, I'm going where mom goes because <laughs> dad was in the military and I got to go. Right. And I could end up who knows where. You know, I ended up here. It's crazy that, you know, all these years later and it's like your lyrics and life story hold up. You know what I mean? It's like the same shit now. Yeah. It repeats itself. It's like every adult. Meaning when you achieve adulthood like myself, you have kids and you're just like, motherfucker, I thought. You know, it's like, I didn't want jetpacks, but I, I would love for everyone to have a doctor. Yeah, man. You <laughs> know, immigrants can't afford to come to the Lower East Side anymore. Now, no, well, now so, those days are so over for that. that. <laughs> over. You know? But besides for that. Those rich white immigrants need a place to go. <laughs> hey, I was, my And a blue building is where they're going to go. Just 30 years before that. <laughs> Just, it was that's where it's I, it's really weird what the lower east side is turning yeah. into yeah it's really weird yeah and a lot was, of areas too all, all over the i travel the world i got to see like big changes in amsterdam berlin yeah. london chicago Happening all these major everywhere. cities everything yeah. that's a major city it's a major hub there's potential lots of tourism they just threw everybody out to every the other outsides of the area and they say yeah it's nice it is nice but it's it's not genuine anymore, mm-hmm. you know. I miss those street walkers, you know. Not that I went to them, but <laughs> right. that was awesome, you know. I miss taxi. I miss the triple X movies and stuff. I don't like. I'm not. I go to Times Square is Disneyland. I don't get it. <laughs> but I want to go to Disneyland. I go to Disneyland. This is New York City. Yeah. Get those rated X movies back up there. <laughs> I, I had. Uh, I had a, did we play a game on this show where we we I have had a friend of yours. I see if the mystery friend. It's called Mystery Friend. Okay. I hit up one of your friends. One friends? One of your friends, yep. Oh, boy. <laughs> and I said, uh, Roger's coming on the podcast tonight. What's a good story to ask him about? Um, oh so God. I wanted to see if you wanted to talk about any of these and if you could, <laughs> afterwards, if you want to guess who it was. But uh, this person said, ask about the story of the van crash in Staten Island, the one where the wheel fell off with Sam, the pit bull in the van. <laughs> Who asked you that? You gotta guess. You gotta guess. This is mystery, friend. Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> it seems like a deep cut I, we I, got right here. This is good. That mystery friend knows me very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he got a couple other suggestions. I'm scared I'm going to give it away, though. Well, let's hear the story. The, yeah. Is it Craig Satari? Yeah, <laughs> I, know, I know who it is. Yeah, I actually hit up. I actually hit up Paul Delaney, and he was like, "Craig, we'll have better ones." Yeah, all right. There's there's a couple <laughs> things, you know, like there's some things, you know, they're just they're just better off with. Uh, here's another one. Good <laughs> Either that or the story of the backpack in the supermarket and the meat pot. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or let us know if any of these. Or, get or the on. last one, ask about Maddie Henderson's first on the road lunch with AF. The the lunch? Yeah. I can't remember the lunch, but I remember it, one of the stories in my in my book is when he was sitting here just like you sitting there waiting, being anxious, you know? And I just I had to make sure he was road ready because I, I like I'm a prankster. And I like, you know, that's that's how I enjoy myself on the road. I like to 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 have fun or pull pranks and that I think that's in the story where I run yeah. balls naked and I jump over him he was like whoa <laughs> and he, he was okay with it I'm like he's enough. okay with it but I used to do a lot there's a lot of crazy things we used to do just to harden him up I guess for the road <laughs> there was a one time I did I 
put in a book the one time his mom sent him a care package? <laughs> his mom sent him a care package. Who does that, right? <laughs> 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 like, and he gets this really nice little care package that gets it. We're at the house. We're, we're doing one voice. We're, we're into like, we're in a studio practicing. And yeah. I look at this care package. I look at Craig. Uh, at Craig and we just start laughing. We know, he knows something's going to happen. So I carefully cut the bottom of this box and I took everything out and I stuffed it with corn. <laughs> just corn. Cause he was from the Midwest. <laughs> so then I, and I sealed it all back. And then the next day I gave him this, he, he, oh yeah, when your mom get mail, he opens it up. He's all excited. And he's just pulling out cobs of corn. <laughs> just, what, what is this? That's how he got his name. Corn Cobby. We call him Corn Cobby. That's an inside joke. Matt Henderson, we call him Corn Cobby. <laughs> And uh, he's like, I don't understand. He kept saying, he kept looking. I go, I don't understand. <laughs> I, like he must have talked to his mom, and she must have said she sent him something. I don't know. I, just, I don't understand. <laughs> you know, like we would do stuff like that. What was in the care package? I can't even remember. Any, any good swag? I can't or? even remember. <laughs> but there's, there's been so many stories like that. Yeah, tons of stories. I mean, was it hard? How did you kind of manage to keep your sense of humor sort of during, like, living in those squats? Like, you talk about all the rats and how dangerous it was. Like, were you still able to kind of, like, have a sense of humor? Were you always on edge or? No, I don't, you know, we were on edge. Was We had to be on edge because we had to be aware of what's going on. You can't, and I still am on edge. Like, I don't, I, I get uncomfortable in crowded areas. I don't like having my back to something. I, 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 I wish I had eyes all around my head, you know? That's just me. But, um... I didn't. I never felt. I never felt like I was in danger. It's really weird, but I was. I, I don't feel like I ever was, but who knows? There was probably times that I really was, you know. And um, I don't know, man. It's just one of those things. I just do was do was a, a level of comfortness there, a level of warmth, and and being around my peers. We all we all really looked out for each other, man. We were like a real solid tribe. We weren't a gang. There's a difference between a gang and I guess a tribe. We weren't. We weren't like gangs are running drugs and doing things that you would consider gang mentality, I guess. You know, we, yeah. we were just pure survival. We Found knew your we own had, family. We knew we had to protect each other, you know, yeah. and that's what we did. So, but at the same time, we had so much fun because we were, you know, we were, we never felt like the protecting part of it had to really come out as much because when we were together, it was more about fun. And then something happened, something happened. We had to deal with it. I was wondering with... with with that is like when you guys were doing this stuff did you have an idea at the time that you were like trailblazing what ended up being like you know a very important and vital like scene in music and something that's like lasted it's been mocked like all over the world like i mean i've been to like german hardcore festivals half the bands sound like agnostic front look like agnostic front yeah and you know, well, you know like, did you guys you know at that. the time that no. it was like that important? No, we didn't. But it's interesting. There's two things I'm getting out of what your conversation we're having. Two things you one thing you mentioned is really important. I hope I remember the second one. Is that anybody can bomb, mimic a sound, mimic a look, mimic or play anybody could play a song and it'll sound exactly like whatever. But there's a difference in actually living it and living those and living that experience. And I think that's the secret ingredient to a lot of our, our bands when we started mm -hmm. off is that that little element of danger was was that creativity of everything, you know? Sure. You, you know, anybody could pretend to be anything they want. And that's one thing about Agnostic Front is when you did get to meet us or like 
as a one-on-one person or at a show and you kind of felt like a, it was genuine it was a, a connection and everybody wants to be a part of something that's real and genuine if you didn't have that connection if you didn't feel that you would walk away with a whole different outlook on stuff you don't mm-hmm. want to you don't want to be a part of something that's not real right, right. you don't want to yeah. be you don't want to even be associated to it and i think that was just, that's been the secret to our uh, longevity maybe our legacy and the other thing I wanted to touch on, which I just forgot, and I didn't want you to, I didn't want to forget. Let me try to think. What, what was that question? I was again? saying, did you know <clears throat> what you guys were doing would, would wind up so important? The German festivals and people sounding like you, looking like you. Oh, okay. Here's what I wanted to say. Out of all the punk hardcore scene worldwide, isn't it amazing that the New York scene was the one that's bridged? everywhere yeah. we're talking about germany right they took so much of the new york hardcore scene they love it south america you, it, singapore japan australia listen look at that we we created those those bridges we have all around new york city how many bridges we got how many yeah. tunnels we got and the new york hardcore scene did this and on the forefront of it all we're bands like agnostic front leading that sick of it all mad ball murphy's law chrome mags you know we were doing something leeway we were doing something that was so important we didn't know we were doing we were creating something we had no idea we were just having fun just out there having a good time but for some reason the world gravitated to new york i think that the sheer honesty of what you feel from those records for all these bands the music was just like saying something and they were feeling it yeah, and it was a time where a lot of it was kind of like old New York, you know. Sure. Like even if you're going out to South America, like a lot of it's so like relevant to some some of my lyrics of early lyrics because people were actually living it everywhere. They just didn't have anybody that that was on the forefront talking about it. And right. like, wow, what a connection! I met people in I met a person in, in in Russia who did three and a half years in prison just for listening to my record. How crazy is that? Whoa, that's all he did. Because in Russia, prior to when the wall came down, you know, prior to the whole that whole thing, it was illegal to listen to any type of metal or music Uh-oh. like like that. And when right. they got caught, they got punished. Wow! And it was amazing to sign this guy's record. It was cause for alarm. After so many years, he was in tears. Crazy! Oh my God! That's how emotion. That's how much the New York hardcore bridge was everywhere you know and something that kind of you talk about in the book is sort of agnostic front sound and sort of how you're coming from hardcore and then you had like other people join and you go more metal and then it go back i mean how did you kind of like watch that line well you know what it wasn't even watching the line it was just just it was is part of growth you know part of you know with growth comes changes and and just people around us and friends and sub, subliminally not knowing we're influencing each other and it was just all that going on it wasn't like we woke up one day we're like we're going to write a metal song that that never happened it's just this is what came out yeah and this is what with this lineup this is what we were best at cuz you know later on you saw different changes because that's all we knew how to do best at this lineup so let's not pretend we could do something else this is mm. what we do it seemed like you guys were one of the first bands to really cross over in that way though well mm. I, I like to think that we were we were definitely uh, one of those pioneering bands with a lot of different styles of the music as you go along in history we were at least on the forefront of it yeah. you know if Leeway. you think about it 
Yeah, think about it like we were on the forefront of COC, DRI, Agnostic right. Front, Chromax, all that stuff, forefront, leeway, forefront of the of the whole crossover thing, you know? Then think about One Voice, and it's like we were on the forefront of that whole new schoolish type of thing. Take my vocals out of One Voice, if you're familiar with One Voice. Add Freddie's vocal. Just mm. do that. It's it's like you hear Madball. Mm. You hear it, you know. It's right. like wow, you know what I mean. It's like, it's like it was, that was a rev- the, the change of something different, you know. Like we were just always there, you know, on the forefront of it, and we've always just recycled ourselves, you know. Yeah. We just recycle ourselves. If we're gonna sound or be anything else, we might as well just recycle ourselves, you know. Yeah, we've had Sick of It All came on, and they were talking. Yeah, Lou and Pete came on, and which was great because they said that you know they they deal with. Um, want with being prolific and wanting to keep forward thinking and making new records and then uh it seems really big now to go do a record to go to a festival and they want to hear the whole record which is weird because there's some songs you didn't play live Mm -hmm. but then they want to hear the whole thing and they're like we love that the people love it but sometimes it's looking back and doing the whole thing is can be weird because like we have all this great new stuff we love doing and we're still having fun which is tough sometimes you know you want to play something and and you know what it's not the same everywhere else like in Europe we 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 play a lot more newer stuff in America they they just want to hear more victim of pain calls for alarm and live at CBGB stuff which is cool which we enjoy cuz now we get to play it over here more than over there because over there they don't want to hear this mm-hmm. so it's like you know you, we don't do the same sets over there as we do here it's different you know and it's okay with me because I, I, I would be so like, it'll be Groundhog Day if I had to do the same thing over and over and over. I'm glad we get to revisit things in different ways, in different areas. I never would have thought that. That was fantastic. So like yeah. even you guys play it by Australia or something, you switch it up to. Yeah. That's- if, if I was to show you what, what would be a U.S. set list, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's so, so yeah. much old stuff. And if I show you a, a set list from Europe, it's a lot of our new current stuff and maybe one or two songs from United Blood, maybe one or two songs from Victim of Pain, no cause for alarm songs. It's really how odd, how different areas yeah, are, or how receptive they are. Records, oh, great. In certain areas. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fine with me because yeah, I can't, I can't play 15 albums. Is that what it's out there? You know, it's sure. like way too much to think about. So I'm okay playing a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there and changing it up. You know, speaking of lineup changes, if I've counted correctly, you've had nine drummers. Wow. So, <laughs> who's the best one? Wow, that's a tough question. I mean, there's certain ones that were great for certain records, you know. Right. I love Dave Jones. He, I think he, you know, if it wasn't for Dave Dave Jones, you know, I, I probably would have never done Victim if I could have never got Victim Paint Across because that right. was my masterpiece of all my songs. And Dave really, you know, every, each drummer had a, it, their important role. Louis... And Louis Biero with uh, with cause for alarm, you know, you know. So I would say that's a tough question. Yeah, Willie was great for Liberty and Justice live at CBGB's and One Voice. Okay, uh, Jimmy Coletti was great because we he he went on the road with us. Okay, and um, he never got his opportunity to actually record anything. Was he did our he did our he did our victim and pain tour not till later on. And, but I'm way ahead now. I should have started with rabies. I forgot about my oh, single, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, which is more of, more of a friendship than anything, more friendship than drums at that sure. point. It was all yeah. friends. It didn't matter about who could play or what could play. Obviously, none of us could play and I couldn't even sing. <laughs> so it didn't even matter. It was just friendship, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, keeping along the line, 
then then Steve Gallo is how did you get nine? Am I a near nine? Steve Gallo. <laughs> I think we're up to like five, five or, or six. six. Here. Yeah. Okay. Well, sure. Steve Gallo had had an important role. Then then Pokemon. Did I miss somebody? Uh, I think we're at about like seven. I didn't write them all down though. <laughs> Well, I mean, so. we had drummers that no, we had drummers that never played anything. Oh yeah, because uh, it like probably listed two, two songs guys, for uh, yeah, uh, always does it. Uh, yeah. uh, Petey Hines, who went on to play with the Chromags after the Age of Quarrel. Okay, uh, he played with us before, and we we recorded just two songs with them. I think they're on that compilation, Message to America. I'm pretty sure Petey recorded those songs. Okay, that was a favorite for Dave Jones, who helped uh, helped me with with uh, Victim and Pain. I went to back to his studio and record a song for him for his for his compilation. Um, I'm trying to think what other drummer. Sorry, I did well, this no, no, the we also had Robbie guys. Robbie Cribcrest, your original drummer. But that was before me. <laughs> oh, okay. So there you go. This oh, your yeah, before you. And it blows my mind. I, yeah. I'm friends with Steve Martin. Okay. Um, and it and a, you know obviously like does press for like U2 and Radiohead right. and Paul McCartney. Now it's wild to me that he was in the band at one point too. Yeah, I mean guitar players. Woof. Is that uh, even more than nine? Um, maybe not, because Vinny's been... Con- well, even there was a time where Vinny wasn't in a band, so yeah, maybe <laughs> as much. I think there's uh, Chris, Chris, who was doing like an like a 30... Th- like one of those costful arm era, but he actually has the the members in Agnostic. I think it's around 35 members close together with everybody. Wow. I'm the fourth singer, and I'm the, fir- I'm the first one on anything. <laughs> so just think about it. Crazy. That part in the book is so funny when that guy is saying he's a singer agnostic front trying to pick yeah. up girls. That was so <laughs> that was, I, my, I, my wife could have came home and killed me. <laughs> she, she's like, what do you mean? You married Roger? I'm married. I'm like, Who's Roger? <laughs> Who are you talking about? <laughs> you know? I think that's in, funny, right? Yeah, that's very funny. And One of my favorite things from the book is when you talk about, you know, because you got to hear a lot of music is it was being created. You know what I mean? Yeah. Punk, hip hop, hardcore, like all of that is when you first heard Rocket to Russia, it made you want to throw rocks through windows. And I was like, what, what a perfect review of that record. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> really seriously. I was just like, <laughs> it's such a great record. I mean, punk rock, man, when I first discovered punk rock, it was, it's everything I ever wanted. Honestly, I was, I was a trapped child. I was trapped. I was, uh, like I said, my life was an emotional mess. I didn't have any friends. I couldn't make any friends. And I didn't, I didn't want friends. It was hard enough to, for me already to be friendly because I was a very introverted type. I mean, this music has helped me come out of my shell, you know. And a lot of people that know me know that I've, I'm still a very calm, more quiet, reserved person. That's who I am. I mean, who is the the life of agnostic fun. I say Vinny Stigma. Everybody loves <laughs> Vinny Stigma. Vinny Stigma is, is, is my Eddie from Iron Maiden, you know, <laughs> but Vinny Stigma is the life of agnostic fun. He really is. I mean, mm. it's, it's, he brings a, something special. P- people love him. It's true. And I think people have always been a little bit more cautious with me. And it's because my, I guess my, my personality, who, how, how I am, I guess, and it's not intentional, it's just that I've always been more reserved and I've always, I've been an introverted kid my whole life and then, and, and are shy of things and stuff like that. And all of a sudden I meet these people and I meet punk rock and I'm like, whoa, life just began. It really just began. Mm. And it didn't begin till I was 13 years old. Isn't that weird? 13, 13, I lived 13 years of, I don't know what was going on. <laughs> I might as well have been an infant, you know, till I was 13. 
So cool. What was, um, can you talk a little, I loved how you kind of talked about rabies in the book and I'm big, you know, I saw Warzone once, but not today. I mean, what was it like kind of revisiting that and kind of your friendship with him? Oh man, rabies, it, I mean, it was emotional because there's a lot of things that rabies bought to me from the very beginning. I mean, he asked me to join the band, you know, till unfortunately when he passed and he was supposed to sing, I don't know if it's in the book when he was supposed to come and sing, um, the Blame, which is a song we used to always sing together. And unfortunately, he passed and I asked Jimmy G to come and sing the song, which we did. And I still felt incomplete. This is for something's got to give. I felt incomplete. I knew I, Rabies was already, he had passed a month ago. And I'm like, man, even though Jimmy did this song with me, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. And it was great. It came out great. But it, I, I, that miss, I was still missing Rabies, you know. And then I went home and then I woke up the next day and... And and it came to me, and, and I would like to say that he's he's been like a garden angel because all of a sudden I'm like, boom, something came to me. I went back right back in the studio. I said, just record me, and then I had everybody else come and follow from the East Coast to the West Coast, all that whole thing. That's all tributes to Ray, and then True Styles of Revolution, true, all tribute to Ray's, and it came from me from Ray. It was like my garden angel. If it wasn't for those little things to add to that song that was fully recorded, fully, then we used to play it live without any of that. Without any intro or outro, that song ended up being our, one of our biggest songs ever. Hmm. And it came from Ray, those those parts, you know, besides that Jimmy Coletti had, was the right guy who wrote the song with his other band. But Rabies added that he put the icing on the cake from heaven, you know. So Rabies has always been a really personal, close friend of mine. He's the only person I ever did that cut thing blood brother thing with, you know, <laughs> which is funny when I think about it. I still have a single... Back then, we did it. We had when United Blood came out. You know how you didn't have, you have your labels was blank. There was the blank side labels that were messed up. It was offset and into almost at the end of the Matrix, where it, it the record plays, but it just ends abrupt uh. at the end, which is perfect. So we dedicated our one to each other, and I still have the one he dedicated to me. Cool. And I dedicate one time. I went. I don't wonder what that is. You know, that's how close we were. Even when he wasn't in the band, he helped packaged the records he helped do th- stuff and i was the one that got him to sing you know even when we he had to go from the band for whatever reason it was i helped him with his first band verbal assault i played bass i helped him get out of the drum thing where i was telling him, man you shouldn't be drumming you should be singing and i was right i really was right and and then finally he had his voice with warzone i wish someone told me that you, you should, should be a front man. Yeah. You Jesus should be a front Christ. man. It's too Tell late you right now, now, man. <laughs> Jeez. You can do it. You can do it now. I'm too old. Stop it. No such thing as too old. <laughs> yeah, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> that or I'm fit for abuse. <laughs> I mean, I had, do you know anyone who's visited Cuba kind of recently? We tried, you know, we really? were, were in, in our film, um, The Godfather's of Hardcore, we we're supposed to go back to Cuba and play a show. We have be- friends of mine in Cuba that actually, Arabio, they came from Cuba. I got them a show here at the Black and Blue Bowl about four or five years ago. Nobody even bothered, nobody cared, which is a shame. A Cuban hardcore band. It's crazy. From Cuba, yeah. came to the United States and played the Black and Blue Bowl. Does anybody remember? No. no. Judge, That's a shame. Was a, Judge was the headliner, I think. And that was all judge, judge, judge. Fair enough, just judge. But here's a band coming from 
you know, like, imagine that. And they all went back. You know, it's crazy. I've been friends with them, and we were supposed to go to Cuba and play a show. We were excited, and we booked it. We booked our flights. There was a venue, and right till we were supposed to fly Sunday, right till on Friday, we were supposed to get our visas, and they denied my visa, my mother's visa, my brother's visa. We are going to go shoot the film where I lived. My mom was going to show oh, me everything, wow. yeah, yeah. and they denied our visas. Any reason? or Well, apparently um anybody that left cuba prior to 1971 is not allowed to go back this anti-castro oh, and shit. you know how everybody's talking about oh yeah come to cuba it's open it ain't open first huh. of all we had every, we had the right to go because they said well if you um if you're doing a film blah, blah, blah we did everything the right way we went to the cuban consulate in dc we did everything the right way i sat down with a, me and my brother rudy we sat down with a woman at the Cuban consulate. Oh, this is going to be no problem. Don't worry about it. We're going to make it. I'm sure as hell. And we lost. We lost. We, at that point, I was like, we're not going to go. We don't have you. We don't have the film crew. The guy from the, that was flying from England, I think he actually, he ended up going from England to his connection and he just went back. Uh-huh. With the film guys. Well, I just go back to not letting Roger and his mom. Have you uh, investigated doing it again since the, the laws well, it, have gotten it, loosened? I would, maybe it'll get better, but I don't think it's still that easy because right. we had to go through American Airlines and they, it's really weird. And you have to go to this other office at the airport. And it's, you know, we just lost a lot of money too. Nobody was sure. funded our flights and nothing oh, like that. Wow. It's yeah, a lot yeah. of money. Gone. And that wasn't even the point. We were gonna, I, was, I, was, I wanted to go out there playing a free show in Havana. It was amazing. You yeah. know? The whole thing was... And it was so important to me to go back to the country I came yeah. from. And apparently they love Agnostic Front. They know my history. They know all this stuff. And, and there's no politics involved with us when it comes to... I never picked a side when it comes to their life. Yeah. You know, they seem to be living. It is what it is, you know? But it was very, it was very, it, it hurt, you know, it hurt. Yeah. We we were so ready to do it. My, I mean, my mom and me and my brother, you know, it would have been magical. It's it would have shame. been completely magical to see my home again. I know what my house looks like. If I'm standing in front of it, I could tell you that's it, but I don't know where it is. Right. Uh, huh. But my earliest memory from Cuba is my home. I what, know it. What made you want to do the film? I remember seeing like a screening of like, there's American Hardcore, and there's Salad Days, and there's this, the Bad Brains one. And Well, we started this, we originally went to start this film, believe it or not, in 1994. Well, oh, no, 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 in 2004, I'm sorry. Okay. We began this Ian thing, and then we recorded a, a part for the film and a live show at CBGB's. It was so intense that we actually released it. The Live at CBGB's album number three, our third Live at CBGB's album, <laughs> and the video. It's a Live at CBGB's video at CBGB's. It was insane. That was part of the beginning of the journey of making the film, but it was so good that we were like, man, let's just release this right now. <laughs> and it slowed everything down. And then the same thing, he got busy, we got busy, he got busy, we got busy, and we started doing it again. And it, 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 it think about also, Ian had to change the whole ending of the whole film. It had to change the whole thing because of the Cuba thing. That was the grand finale. Right, the grand finale right, was just, right. the carpet just got pulled out of us. Yeah. You know, like, where is the grand finale? You know, imagine that a, 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 per, a guy leave. That's a story of himself. This guy leaves Cuba, comes to America, goes back to playing Cuba. That's a story. Looks you know, like you got to make another story. film. I think. 
Well, I guess so. First, it got to let me in. Story. story. <laughs> you know? I can't could, make that it could without be the film. Yeah. Sneaking in. That's a film. In <laughs> well, itself. you see, they 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 mentioned that, and 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 I was like, "There's no way I'm going to even attempt that with my mother." Dangerous. Oh, yeah. Shit. Yeah. First of all, she left under certain things. Imagine that they could, you know, a political prison, a political prison. Yeah. And they, you know, I'm like, "There's no way you can. I'm not going to sneak in." They go, oh, go through here, go through here, and you say this and no, 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 no. If I can't go the right way, because we left, you get it? Yeah, yeah. This is, you, now joke. you're a political prisoner of yeah, some yeah. sort. You don't fuck around with that. No, not yeah. with my mom. Yeah. No. I'm not, I'm not getting my mom involved with it. My mom's 60, what, 65, 66, whatever. I'm like, you kidding me? Can I ever take that chance? Yeah. No. It's wise. Well, maybe Trump will open it up. Yeah. <laughs> I'll hold my breath for yeah. that one. Slug baits are opening right yeah. now as we speak. I mean, that's probably the best thing to put your faith into. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what are your thoughts? Uh, I, I know you guys had that song about Giuliani. Oh, um, God, yeah. <laughs> and he kind of made a comeback in the last couple of years. He's been the public. I mean, what do you still, uh, still kind of stand by, like, all that stuff? Well, you know, I don't know. I've been... You know, Giuliani, to me, destroyed the city. Like, destroyed that... Um, you know that that what we were talking about you know earlier. taxi driver thing. Sure, you know? right. he made it safe for everything. Oh, Brad you know? just bolted out. Brad loves yeah. to go off on this topic. Living oh. in New York as long as he has, yeah. it's great. Well, you know Brad's the thing, the thing is, you know, the, a lot of people do like Giuliani, I guess. And and the best thing that ever happened to Giuliani, can I say, is the best thing that ever happened? Probably the worst thing that ever happened in New York history was what happened to World Trade Center. Mm-hmm. He was at his bottom low. He cheated on his wife. He had cancer in his nuts. Everything on his way out. That yeah. happens, and he became a hero. Uh, you know what I mean? But it, it's sad all that had happened. Anyway, I, I, I'm not a fan. And I was kind of hoping he would run for president because I had the song for the other guy. Uh, you're right. Oh, Giuliani. Yeah. Giuliani, you know the song? Yeah. Police State. <laughs> I'm like, I got the song for you. <laughs> you're Here's right, your campaign right. against song. Oh, man, that would be amazing to hear at the <laughs> yeah, convention. Yeah, yeah. yeah, imagine that. <laughs> but it didn't happen. Quick reminder, our Patreon account is up and active. You can go check it out at patreon.com slash goingofftrack and also via our website. All right. Thank you so much to Roger Murray for coming by. Um, You can check out his book, My Riot, Agnostic Front, Great Guts and Glory. It is available now on Amazon, bookstores, Barnes & Noble. It came out in August. It's really great. If you haven't checked out Agnostic Front, what is wrong with you? AF, man. Yeah. Just want to thank Vinny Stigma, too, while I'm here, just yes. because I think that that's we gotta do a thing podcast to do. We got to do a podcast. Oh, my Stigma. God. <laughs> I'm, I'm on it. I'm on it. Uh, but yeah. I'll, uh, get a, I'll get like him and Jimmy. <laughs> Jimmy. That, that would be incredible. Uh, but yeah. If you've, if you've, seriously, if you've, if, seriously, if you've never listened to uh, Victim in Pain, you got to. Uh, you got to check it out. It's yeah, it's legendary. It's like up there, like Age of Coral, Start Today. It, uh, you know, it's the canon of New York hardcore. Yes, indeed. Um, if you want to support this podcast um, and you enjoyed this episode, uh, you want to help us out with our server costs, you can go to venmo.com slash off track. Um, that'll go to Brad. Um, he'll he'll share it with us. Hopefully, you can also go to paypal.com and donate via our website goingofftrack.com or you can go on iTunes and leave us a nice comment and review for free. Or you can go to Fine Fair, hang out by the bear aisle, and just wait for Brad to come in. 
and buy him uh, Dale's Pale Ale. Yeah, I'll take it. Yeah. Uh, anything we'll else? Buy Jonah a beer when, when he's out because he's out. Yeah, know? I'm Not out. like me. I'm out. I'm not out enough. I'm out sometimes. Yeah, you can buy me beer. That's cool. It's 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 happened a handful of times. One time I was in uh can't remember where I was. I think it was on the West Coast. I was on Tours Pianos We Come to Teeth, and some guy was like, I like your podcast, and you just gave me a dollar. <laughs> and I was like, This is like weird. <laughs> like I took it, but it, it felt it felt sort of dirty. Like I don't know how to explain it. I was a like one dollar bill? Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, but it was a nice gesture. I guess it was just strange. I was it's like, like you, if you under tip a cab driver, it's more effective than like no tip at all. You know, like you give a cab driver like like thirty two cents, and like that is actually a bigger disc than if you don't tip. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like so. Dollars. Oh, like if, if five more people give me this, I can buy a beer. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it is paper money, but also it's the lowest paper money you could hand somebody. Yeah. But thank you, dude. But yeah, you thank you. This is a couple <laughs> years ago, but it's you know it's the it's it's the intent. Yeah, you're right. So shouldn't dismiss it. It's cool. Shouldn't dismiss it. But it was weird. I mean, it was it was a yeah. And not to say that if every single listener decided to donate one dollar per episode, which is you know if you think about it, it's what it costs to buy. It's less than what you pay for like a song, right? If they were to do that, then we would be set yeah and this let's face it this podcast is better than any song (laughs) yeah i guess so yeah a song is like what like four minutes long it's like an hour (laughs) you got like let roger murray on here yeah come on i mean much better vocals yes much better audio quality yeah the audio quality is off the chain yes so yeah thanks to roger buy his book seriously it's a really really incredible accomplishment you should definitely read it Um, Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. 